You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hello, everyone. This is Sarah. I can't believe this is our 100th episode of Belaboured. Um, thank all of you so much for listening and continuing to make this thing happen every week. Uh, we obviously couldn't do it without you. People over the last few years have asked us how they can help support the podcast. And so to help all of you help us, we're launching a new Belabored Sustaining Membership option. There will be a link at the Descent website if you would like to sign up to be a monthly contributor to Descent to help us keep going. You can sign up for a small or a large monthly contribution. You can give Descent a one-time donation to help keep us going. Um, Thank you once again for all of your support. We are really, really happy that we've been able to keep doing this for 100 episodes. Thanks. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Thank you to Mark for this wonderful book that I've been reading over the past few days and going, oh, man, I wish this had come out sooner because I wish I could work more of this into my book. Um, Anyway, so, Mark, start us off by telling us what the argument of this book that you and your brother wrote is. Cool. Uh, well, thank you for having me on the show, and congratulations on the 100 episodes. It's awesome. Um, so the book is called This is an Uprising, How Nonviolent Revolt is Shaping the 21st Century. It's um, a book about how protest movements work, how they create change from outside of the uh, formal political system. It's about how the dynamics of using uh, mass protest and um, organizing around nonviolent direct action are a little bit uh, different than other types of organizing. And it's a book about how there's actually a a craft to creating the type of explosive uprisings that capture the public imagination and that change our sense of what's uh, politically possible, what's politically necessary in our society. So... I wrote this book with my younger brother, Paul. Um, Paul and I grew up um, in Iowa, along with our older brother, Francis, um, in a family that had roots in the peace and justice tradition of the Catholic Church. And we've been talking about social movements, engaging with social movements, um, um, going to protests together for for more than 20 years now. Um, And... So a formative experience for both Paul and I was um, the global justice movement, um, of the, uh, you know, which exploded onto the scene um, around 1999 with the protests against the World Trade Organization in Seattle. This is, the activists called this the global justice movement. The media called it the anti-globalization movement. And um, Seattle, as you remember, th- there was a huge protest against the World Trade Organization. Something like 50,000 people showed up to protest it was an amazing coalition of union members, environmentalists, um, family farmers, indigenous rights activists, all these different constituencies that came together uh, to oppose the policies of, of corporate globalization. And something like 10,000 people there did a direct action where they actually shut down the um, opening session of, of, the, um, of the WTO meetings and ultimately the city was clouded with tear gas. Bill Clinton declares martial law, and this was a huge um, media event. Battle in Seattle. It was the battle in Seattle. That's right. I think we have a few veterans of the battle in Seattle in the room. Yeah, right. Ooh, living history. And um, I was in Seattle. Paul was not. But this was, uh, a, you know, formative experience for both of us. And um, Paul, both of us were later involved in the um, A16, the April 16th, 2000 
protests against the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. And, you know, this was a very different type of organizing than we had experienced before, because previously we had done um, student activism, student organizing around environmental issues, around anti-sweatshop issues on campus, um, uh, around living wage type issues. And there, you know, organizers would work really hard to get 10 or 15 people in a room for a meeting or to show up um, for, for a protest. And if your demonstrations got any press at all, it would be a little, you know, two-line mention somewhere tucked deep inside the paper. That was sort of our um, expectations. And then all of a sudden this protest in Seattle explodes and becomes uh, a, a huge media event. It, it's in the headlines, and the political climate changed um, People were flooding into activist meetings. You had hundreds of people showing up um, saying they were willing to go to jail or to do high-risk actions. There was this energy that sort of seemed to break all the rules of traditional organizing. This, this sort of isn't the way it was supposed to um, happen. And it, and it felt like we were a part of this type of historic social movement that we had read about in the, in the history books. It's what we call a moment of the whirlwind in the book. And so... Um, you know, this, this was a, there was a tremendous rush of energy around this. Um, but within a, a year or so, all of that sort of fell apart. The energy was gone, and that was a very uh, disorienting thing. We were trying to figure out what happened, why that happened, um, where that energy went. Um, and at that point, Paul um, went to work as, a, as an organizer in the labor movement. I was working as a journalist. I was writing a, uh, on trade issues on labor issues, on uh, Latin American affairs. And that experience we had with mass mobilization sort of went onto the back burner. Um, but over time, we sort of started to notice something. We noticed that uh, every once in a while, these moments of mass revolt would, would happen again. Uh, it was not a one-time thing. So we saw another explosion of, of this type of social movement energy around the Iraq War in 2003. And then three years later, in 2006, 10 years ago this spring, we saw this uh, amazing outpouring around immigrant rights where you had millions and millions of people in the, the streets. Uh, 2011, you had a year full of these type of uprisings with the Arab Spring and then with Occupy. And now we're seeing it again with Black Lives Matter. And um, this was very interesting to us. And one thing that we noticed is that every time these things would happen, the media has, would say something very similar about them. They would say that they were spontaneous, that they were unplanned, that they were uncontrolled, that they were emotional. They called these things a once-in-a-lifetime event. Um, but, you know, once you start paying attention to it, once you start looking, you notice that these once-in-a-lifetime events are actually happening all the time. Um, and so the same years Occupy, there were mass protests in Spain and in much of Europe. Um, then there were huge student demonstrations in Quebec and um, in Chile. Then there were these eruptions in Mexico, in Turkey, in Brazil, and Hong Kong. And, uh, you know, we started to ask, why aren't these accounted for in our vision of social change? Why don't we understand these um, as, as, as part of how our societies progress? And why are we always taken by surprise by these type of uprisings? And, you know, we noticed another piece of this, which is that it wasn't just um, the media that didn't know how to handle these eruptions. It was, it was also actually true in activist and in organizing circles. Um, a lot of the organizers who we respected most in the worlds of um, community organizing and labor organizing 
didn't actually have very much to say when these sort of moments of, of mass revolt would break out. Um, you know, in some cases, they were actually very dismissive of them. They would say, you know, you, you can't rely on these things. They don't build up organization. They're sort of historical flukes. And, um, and, and they flare up and they die out. And because of that, a lot of these organizers actually chose to sort of ignore these outbreaks. And um, as a result of this, there's sort of a gap that's formed between um, the worlds of what we call structure-based organizing, um, some of those unions and community um, organizations, and the world of mass protest or mass, um, mass mobilization. Um, in that world of structure-based organizing and community and labor organizing, there's, um, you know, there's very well mapped out techniques and methodologies of how to organize that way, right? We have the Midwest Academy Handbook. We have Rules for Radical. We have all these volumes of, of how to organize in a structure-based tradition. But this, the, the, the dynamics of mass mobilization and how to organize around this were a lot more uh, murky and mysterious. So we thought, well, what if we don't just treat these things as flukes? Uh, what if we really dig in and study their dynamics? What if we get to the bottom of how to sustain uh, outbreaks of, of revolt when they happen, how to harness their power, and maybe even how to create uprisings from scratch? Um, so that's really what we tried to do with this book. That's what the book is about. Excellent. Um, so you were just talking about the, the difference between these sort of um, structure-based groups, the, the Alinsky model for, that a lot of community groups still follow, and particularly of importance to our audience is obviously labor unions, um, and this more flexible and kind of risk-taking and transformational organizing that you're talking about. Um, can you explain a little bit more the difference there and what labor unions and structure-based organizations can learn from the momentum-driven organizing that you lay out in the book? Right. So, you know, I think what, what was interesting is once we started to dig into this is that we noticed and we, we discovered that this is actually a tension that goes really deep in social movement history. It's, it's a divide that shows up again and again in different decades, in different movements, in different countries and, and continents. Um, a, a conflict between, on the one hand, creating change through the power of building organization, and then, on the other hand, uh, uh, creating change through the, using the power of, of disruption. And... Um, so an example of this is in the civil rights movement. Um, we, we saw this. Uh, uh, Bob Moses, a famous organizer um, in the civil rights movement, said there's actually two different things going on um, in the movement. There were two different strains of activity. There were, there's a community um, mobilizing tradition that was focused on these high-profile um, events that was sort of epitomized by the work of Martin Luther King. And there's a community organizing tradition epitomized by the work of Ella Baker, um, of people who, you know, um, have a greater emphasis on the long-term development of, of leadership, a longer-term investment in um, communities. We saw those two strains appear in the civil rights movement. And, um, and you know, uh, in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, one of the leaders, Stokely Carmichael, he said, organization um, and mobilization um, – was always a serious problem because every day-to-day -day tactical decision was was affected by the strategic approach. Everyone is what he says, um, and and because of that, ultimately SNCC develops this critique of SCLC. Um, it it uh, sort of says, well, 
they don't do enough to build long-term leadership at Community uh, King and his people come in, they stir things up, they create this huge media spectacle, and then they disappear and they leave us to clean up the mess. Um, and I think that that was, a, that was a valid critique. And yet, at the same time, um, campaigns like Birmingham you know, created some of the defining images of the civil rights movement. They um, dramatically shifted public opinion nationally, and they did more than arguably any other effort to uh, push forward federal legislation on civil rights. So, um, you know, the long-term organizing is, is very important, but these outbreaks of um, revolt also have um, big benefits. And, and you're asking, you know, what maybe what can labor unions learn from this? I mean, I, I think that the, the point ultimately of identifying these two different organizing traditions is that by understanding this, we can sort of get beyond some of the knee-jerk tension and, and dismissiveness and have, um, you know, have a more open-minded um, engagement and really talk about how these things can work in tandem and how one can build off of, off of the other. And um, we saw, you know, I think one of the things that motivated us to write the book when we did is that um, we saw this very interesting moment of openness after Occupy, mm -hmm. yeah. where um, you know you saw people in labor and community organizations, you know, saw that mobilization. And they were like, you know, holy cow, this you know this has affected the national conversation about inequality, uh, about jobs, about um, you know these economic issues that we've been trying to do certainly since the since the crisis in 2008 and yet we haven't been able to do and we need to sort of understand this better and so there was a there's an interest in reaching outside of their tradition a little bit and then on the opposite side you had a lot of occupy people who um, who had sort of a similar experience to what we had in the global justice movement where they had this exhilarating time when the camps were up when they were in the headlines and then a lot of that energy disappeared and, and, um, and dissipated, and so they were interested in questions of how can we make this more deliberate? How can we make this more sustainable? How can we absorb and institutionalize some of the energy of these mass uprisings? And so it was this great moment where sort of coming from both sides, um, th there was an interest in understanding these organizing traditions and, and having a dialogue that, that often doesn't exist. Um, so just building off of that, you developed this idea of a concept of civil resistance uh, throughout the book, um, and you sort of use different movements as touchstones for um, kind of, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it seems to be sort of a, one way of synthesizing the more spontaneous versus the more structure-based approach would be to develop, like, sort of institutionalize a way to respond um, to maybe spontaneous moments that come up, but also have enough discipline in it um, for it to eventually turn into something sustainable and be able to convert that into a real sort of long-term gain towards the end. So could you um, talk about civil resistance um, in the context of these two organizing response traditions and, and talk about, um, and also, you know, for, for those of us who maybe don't study this, you know, uh, and we all just sort of lump it under activism writ large, um, talk about the need to for people to think more systematically about the nuances and the differences. Right. So civil resistance, uh, you know, a, a core argument of, of the book is that some of the people with the best insights into how these mass mobilizations work, how to spark them, harness them, um, sustain them, are people who come out of, of a lineage of strategic nonviolence. 
um, you know, I'll tell you another story. I, we, uh, as I mentioned before, grew up um, sort of in the Catholic left, right, in this um, in the peace and justice tradition of the Catholic Church. And my dad was a priest and my mom was a nun, and they uh, left the ministry <laughs> to have a family. That's right, yes. And um, that was in the 1970s. Oh, it's yeah. the 70s, of course. That's right, yes. Um, and so my parents were supporters of the Catholic uh, worker movement, which was founded by Dorothy Day and, and Peter Morin, um, and they helped to set up the first Catholic worker house in, in Des Moines, Iowa, where we're from. And uh, every once in a while, um, you know, my brothers and I would go down to visit the Catholic worker, and we were exposed to these activists who did these really dramatic actions to protest the immorality of nuclear war. These were actions in the plowshares tradition. So it would be sneaking on to a military base and trying to, you know, beat on a the wing of a fighter plane or the nose cone of a nuclear missile to try to um, disarm this. And, um, and these were really risky actions. And when the Catholic workers were arrested for this, they'd often go to jail for years at a time. Uh, it was it was a huge sacrifice, and on the one hand, I grew up um, really admiring these people and their ability to create these small, intense communi communities of people who are willing to take these sort of um, huge risks, these make these huge um, personal sacrifices for the causes of peace and justice. And you know, on the other hand, as my brothers and I um, started to get more and more involved in politics. You know, we realized there wasn't a lot of discussion in the Catholic worker uh, about whether these sacrifices were really being effective. Um, you know, whether they were actually creating the type of change that we need. Um, there was a lot of talk about bearing witness, you know, a lot of talk about speaking truth to power, uh, but there wasn't a lot of talk about winning. And uh, there was even a saying in the Catholic worker uh, Jesus never told us to be successful. I mean, I was uh, raised Jewish, so, you know, right. we have similar traditions. Yes. And, you know, my brothers and I didn't want to just make sacrifices. We wanted to win, you know. And that led us to a couple different places. And, and you know, one was, was to the labor movement, you know, to, to that tradition of people who are really organizing to build power and to win. But um, the other place it led us is to people who... Um, who were doing something different with nonviolent direct action. Um, they, they were doing nonviolent direct action, but not as uh, an individual act of moral witness, but instead they were doing it with the goal of really building mass movements. And what we've seen in the last 40 years is this um, development of a tradition called strategic nonviolence or civil resistance, where these are people who are... Um, you know, traditionally nonviolence was understood as sort of a moral precept or a you know code. It was like an ethics that you would live your life by. It was associated with pacifism. It had really strong religious overtones. And in the last 40 years or so, we've seen the development of a tr tradition of people who are talking about, uh, thinking about nonviolent direct action through a strategic lens. Right? There's all sorts of different situations where people have decided to do. Um, you know, unarmed revolt because they decide that armed struggle is not going to work for them. You know, that that's not the reality of their political situation, that the state or their opponents have uh, a monopoly on violence or an overwhelming um, advantage in violence and that any sort of little guerrilla movement they create is going to get crushed. And so they're talking about how do we, you know, um, 
wage a different type of conflict, right? That um, that employs these tools of, uh, of of mass mobilization and and organizing. And there's this vast toolkit that's associated with that, right? That could be, um, you know. Um, Building occupations, land occupations, all sorts of boycotts and strikes, up to including the, a general strike. Um, all of that combined with um, creative, um, you know, activism and and, um, and art and, and some of that stuff. Um, there's this very broad uh, array of, of ways to um, exercise non-cooperation. To talk about how do we strategically withdraw cooperation um, from a regime and to create uh, create change. And so the tradition of, of civil resistance is something that's both developed um, academically, where people have been studying this over the last uh, you know, 30 years or so, um, coming largely out of the work of, of a theorist named Gene Sharp. And then um, on the ground, the, the organizing tradition of strategic nonviolence has also developed in different countries in different ways, but there's been sort of an aggregation of knowledge and information of, of how to do some of this stuff. And, and so in the United States, we see a lineage of nonviolent direct action that comes out of the civil rights movement it feeds into um, you know, feminist stuff. It feeds into anti-nuclear movements, into um, um, the um, you know Central American Solidarity Movement, into um, radical environmental activism, into ACT UP in the 80s and 90s, um, and then into the globalization movement and a lot of the things that I talked about before. There's a common um, strain. You know, sometimes it's the same people. Sometimes it's a tactical repertoire. It's a language. A lot of these same skills have sort of uh, evolved and continued through this tradition. And so, um, you know, with this book, I think we want to talk about some of the insights that have been developed internationally around civil resistance, looking at things, all sorts of cases where um, this type of nonviolent direct action has been used um, against even uh, very repressive and undemocratic governments, you know, used in the Philippines or used in Chile or used in um, Serbia, and some of the knowledge that's come out of that tradition and combine it with sort of this indigenous tradition in the U.S. Could you give a quick example um, that we might sort of be able to readily recognize it? And I know you started talking about Seattle, but I, I don't know if you'd considered that to be an example of this repertoire of civil resistance, but just so we have an, a, a sense of what you're talking about. Well, yeah, all of these, all of these mass mobilizations that I'm, that I'm talking about, from you know, um, civil rights to anti-nuclear, anti-nuclear power um, demonstrations to, you know, you could talk about stuff going on in the global justice movement. You know, the interesting thing here is that all of these movements have different currents, you know, uh, that, are, that are part of them. So we can talk about, um, you know, how to understand them and talk about this sort of theoretical framework that we have for, you know, for talking about them, understanding them, having a vocabulary to talk about mass mobilization. That doesn't necessarily mean that the people um, who are involved or organizing them have, you know, uh, specifically done civil resistance trainings or identify right. with that per se, right? Although a lot of times some people have, and a lot of times people sort of absorb this stuff without even knowing what exactly, you know, it is. I mean, that's, you know, really the main level uh, that we're sort of functioning on in this book is a level of, of organizing traditions. You know, and what is an organizing tradition? You know, when you say just like a movement, a social movement, people don't really know what that is. You know, it's a very br broad concept. And if, if you're trying to um, have an umbrella concept that includes both something like the labor movement, which has been around 
how long? You tell me, 100 years, 200 years, whatever lineage you want to. At least 200 years. Yeah, you know, identify versus, but you also want to, this to include something like Occupy, right, which is around for how long? You tell me, a year, <laughs> you know, six months, a year, two years, Take whatever notes. it is, yeah. right? They're very different things, and people don't really quite know how to get their head around them if you just say, we're talking about social movements, right? Yeah. So one thing we do in the book is we talk about organizing traditions, you know, and what an organizing tradition is, you know, it, it is a set um, set of skills, a set of, of methodologies, a set of a theory of change about how your work is going to create social change. And a lot of times this stuff is not very explicitly laid out, you know. It's just you go into an organization, you go into an Alinskyite community organization, they just say, this is how you organize, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. They don't say, like, oh, this is one theory of how we organize and this is how it's the same or different than these other organizations. They say, this is the way it's done, this is the way you um, create change. And even like the corporate world is actually probably way ahead of the left on this where they'll talk about organizational culture, right, and how a lot of the values and practices of an organization are just transmitted through how you set up your office and what the norms of, of that stuff are. And sort of, you know, you have some analog to that in, in uh, with organizing traditions in, in the sort of left um, uh, progressive world. So people, you know, movements have sort of a DNA that gets replicated for better and, and for worse, and, and some of this stuff is long-term, um, you know, stuff, stuff that's really rooted in a longer tradition. So um, going back to this idea of, I mean, what you said about um, organizational culture is interesting because I'm, I'm actually sort of, um, I've, I've been kind of tangentially involved in um, um, some programs that are involved with something called cultural organizing, which is sort of uh, sort of the leftist answer to that. But I, I guess, can you talk about the the role of cultural context in this, uh, in the sense that um, we, in sort of the examples of social movements that we're most immediately familiar with, you may associate them with, say, uh, I don't know, Western, you know, contemporary Western democracies, for instance, or um, things that are not necessarily going on. Um, in the global south without a lot of exposure to, say, international institutions or sort of this transnational sort of cultural idiom of, of how to, you know, do a demonstration or how to protest and that sort of thing. Um, and But you also spend a good part of your book examining um, Gandhian uh, nonviolence and, and his particular brand, which actually, interpret, you know, sort of reinterpreted a lot of indigenous elements of, of culture and, and turned them into something new. Um, so I guess I'm just thinking, how do you see the role of the surrounding cultural context as either informing um, civil resistance and how it develops, or how the idea of civil resistance can kind of be grafted onto different cultural contexts? And I was thinking, for instance, like, what happens in a place that, uh, you know, is operating under a military dictatorship as opposed to a Western democracy where you might have malleable leaders that you can dialogue with, and what happens in the context of war? Right. The big question, <laughs> the big question, and you know, um, you know, in some in some ways, that's a question that's that's bigger than the book, and that really applies to this whole field, you know, civil resistance and the way they're thinking and, and talking about things. You know, with this book, um, you know, I mean, organizing does take place in a, you know, in in a particular cultural context, whether that's you could say that's every country or even you know small or local um, peculiarities. I mean, I think we're you know, we want to um, draw out some lessons, uh, you know, uh, about mass mobilization, about momentum-driven um, revolts, as we call them in the book, that are relevant in some different countries. But, you know, I think we're primarily focused on the United States in this. And, 
and really trying to take some lessons from this tradition that's developed, you know, civil resistance really has developed looking, you know, um, looking internationally and, and really looking at, you know, that, that sort of dilemma of from dictatorship to democracy. I mean, that, that was, um, you know, which is a very sort of specific type of framework to think about activism or, or revolt. Um, you know, that, that's sort of been the dominant project within this larger field of, of civil resistance. Um, so, and that was an interesting, you know, project in the history of, if you look at the history of nonviolence or nonviolent direct action, you know, the, there was uh, a narrative for a long time that um, nonviolence or civil, civil disobedience or something like that could only work in a liberal democracy, right? Because, um, you know, if, you know, if, uh, you know, Gandhi could go up against the British Empire, and they ostensibly had these liberal values. And, and, and but if he went went up against Hitler, he would have just been disappeared and killed immediately. Or same thing, you know, with the civil rights movement in the South. That if, if the you know Kennedy and Johnson administrations hadn't been there somehow to you know send in the fed, federal troops and constrain the Southern racists that in a, in a more fascist context, that they just would have been wiped out. And therefore, you know, civil disobedience only works in these very narrow circumstances. And, and I think that one thing that this field has tried to demonstrate is that that's not true at all, that, that actually you have um, situations with very um, undemocratic, repressive um, governments that have, that, you know, groups have taken on and, and successfully um, overthrown. And, and so much of the focus has been in that framework, actually, that for our book, the challenge is actually to take it back to the U.S. and almost prove the opposite, that to prove something that, you know, this stuff that's being used to challenge dictatorships can actually work in a democratic context, right? Mm -hmm. That it's not just, um, you know, that, you know, here people will say, well, you know, why is any of this even relevant if you can just go vote, right? I mean, everything <laughs> yes. can be channeled through we have all heard that. <laughs> the, the formal <laughs> mechanisms of, of politics. And so this is sort of laying out a framework for, for how to take some of this thinking about civil resistance and, and challenging dictatorships and applying it to a democratic context and how change happens in, in our society. And certainly we could talk more about this in the context of an election year. And that is where I'm going to go because um, one of the things that you talk about in this book that um, I like a lot because I have feelings about the subject um, is disruptive protest. And, you know, right now we just saw protests. We are seeing protests all over the country against Donald Trump. And there's also a lot of hand-wringing from extremely well-paid liberal columnists, cough, cough, um, about how divisive and terrible this is and how Donald Trump's right to free speech is being abridged or something. Um, and so I wondered if you could talk about why being divisive and, and how being divisive can sort of be a good thing in these contexts. Right. Well, okay, so first of all, you know, for context, I'd sort of say the, you know, in... In the election year, we just continually hear the refrain that all of our, you know, that the way that political change happens is is by who we elect, and that this is what's going to determine the future of our country is is who's in office, and um, you know that their ability to to push things through Washington to haggle and, and create these sort of legislative compromises within the accepted boundaries of what's feasible, you know, politically feasible. That that's really the most important. Thing and that's you know that's essentially essentially Hillary Clinton's argument right is that she's going to be a better technocrat <laughs> than right. than uh, Bernie Sanders and he's just unrealistic and she knows how to um, get things done 
And, you know, in, within the Washington context, that, that might be true as far as it goes, but it leaves out um, something pretty important, which is the role of social movements. And uh, one of the things that social movements do is that they don't accept those accepted limits of what's possible in a political debate. They actually um, succeed by changing the political train, by shifting the political weather, and, um, and, and you know, creating political possibilities that didn't exist before, almost by definition. They're taking on uh, issues that are not political winners per se, because otherwise they'd already be passed. They're taking on things that are considered political losers, things that politicians don't want to talk about, that they consider um, inconvenient and forcing those onto the public spotlight, rallying public opinion around them, forcing a response where one um, wouldn't have existed uh, before. So, you know, I think that the, um, now some of the drivers of how, how to create move, uh, momentum around these type of movements, we talk about um, disruption, sacrifice, and, and escalation. You know, disruption is a very important part of this. Um, and this, you have theorists like Francis Fox Piven who have done um, great work on this. You know, on the on the importance of disruptive protests. And and the more that people, um, you know, in a, in a civil resistance context, this is talked about as you know, removing your cooperation or removing your com compliance. Right? A dictator cannot collect his own taxes. He cannot milk the cows, right? That everyone, that there's a whole set of social structures that hold up a, a dictatorship. And if all these people stop playing their social roles, um, the, the dictatorship cannot function. So even though we perceive these people to have all the power, in fact, there's a tremendous uh, popular power that's sort of nascent and can be mobilized. And, um, you know, we can see that in the United States too. You know, we think that the senators and CEOs and presidents have all the um, power. But if you have sort of this mobilization of, of public opinion, um, you know, that does create those new possibilities. So disruption is a big part of that because, you know, it's if you just are out doing a protest for one afternoon for a couple hours carrying some picket signs, that's pretty easy to ignore, right? But if you're doing things that are more and more disruptive, right, if you're uh, s sitting in a government office, if you're occupying space, if you're blocking traffic, if you're um, disrupting an event, any of those things, if you're going on strike and withholding your labor, all of those things are much, much harder to ignore. You know, they, they, um, so the power of, of disruption is, is very important. Now, you know, if you read Piven, um, Francis Fox Piven's work, who does a great job of, of, of you know, talking about the importance of this stuff and talking about how it's different than organi creating organizations and building institutions. But you can walk away from Piven just sort of throwing up your hands and say, well, what are we supposed to do? You know, th there's no methodology to it. And you have to dig very, very deep into her work to even find a few paragraphs for how to organize around this. And this is where we think actually this tradition of civil resistance and strategic nonviolence dovetails really, really well. Because these people are really thinking about the nuts and bolts of, well, what, you know, We've got the disruption part, but how do we, you know, how do we exercise that? How do we sustain that? How do we, you know, um, b build on that? Um, so th those are some of the things that we're trying to um, talk about in the book. So, you know, with d disruption, um, it's a powerful social force. We talk about, you know, we talk about this in depth in the book, how it polarizes groups, and that can be um, good or, or bad. Um, it, you know, people... Um, Protests are unpopular, you know, and, and, and disruptive protests are unpopular. People don't like it, and, and they make people uncomfortable, right? They may, they're inconvenient. They inconvenience people, and they make people uncomfortable. And people, 
confuse what makes them comfortable with what's effective in a social movement. <laughs> or what is uh, a violation of their constitutional rights. Yes, exactly. or Donald Trump's constitutional yes. rights. Right, right. Um, and, yeah, and so you get all of that backlash coming. Because people are uncomfortable with disruption, you get that, all of that liberal backlash that you're talking about. And that's as old as these movements. That's certainly that's central in the narrative of the civil rights movement, right? Uh, Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail was not written to Southern racists saying you guys were wrong, right? It's written to liberal preachers who say we agree with your cause, but you're not doing it right. You be know, nicer. be nicer, be more patient, give the system more time, et cetera, et cetera. And then he writes this famous response. And yet, that's the first thing we hear when Black Lives Matter comes out. We agree with your cause, but you know, you guys are going about it the wrong way. This is like this hugely um, common re refrain when you're dealing with um, disruptive actions. Now. Uh, acknowledging that does not necessarily, though, mean that anything goes. So you can do what any any disruption that you want, and it's automatically a good thing, right? The the dynamics of that are pretty complicated, and it requires some um, strategic um, judgment. So we talk a, a lot more about that in the book, about how things like sacrifice and escalation relate to disruption, and how um, polarization can break either way, you know, for or against a movement. Uh, going back to what you were saying at the beginning, where one of your sort of early childhood realizations um, when you were observing social movements early on was, um, well, you know, it's good to do good, but how do we win, right? And just going back to this idea of winning, you actually devote um, quite a bit of your, your theoretical uh, work in this book to uh, figuring out how to assess winning versus victory and failure, right? Um, and how movements should think about this and think about it proactively um, rather than just, you know, do the perhaps impulsive thing and just, you know, cast their hands up in defeat or, um, or you know, just not think about it at all. So um, talk about how do, how do people within movements assess their own tactics and their own achievements and how do they think more strategically about them? Right. So this is a critical question that comes up then when we're looking at different organizing traditions because within a, a, a structured organizing tradition, these structure-based groups have a sort of a, a specific way to look at their demands and to look at their accomplishments, right? They tend to have a, a pretty um, specific targeted demand and a, and a pr pretty specific targeted um, power holder that they're going after. So in the Alinskyite tradition, there's this idea of stop sign organizing, right? That you choose something that resonates in this, you know, specific community. For example, a stop sign at an intersection that might be unsafe for the kids in the neighborhood. You get people in the neighborhood together, you go to the city bureaucrat responsible for this, and you win your stop sign, right? And it's a very clear, you know, then measure of victory. You've demanded the stop sign, you either win or, or fail based on whether you get that. And, you know, so there's a, a type of instrumental um, wins that come out of that. And, and labor unions tend to be so, sort of in a similar mode, right? You've got, you're demanding, you have contract demands, right? You're demanding a raise, you're demanding a scheduling change, you're demanding, you know, something related to benefits, you're demanding something related to the condition of, of work, you know? And then you judge your success or failure, whether when the contract is, you know, finished, whether, you know, what you got, right? Did you get what you wanted? How close to it did you get, et cetera. And, you know, with momentum-driven mass mobilizations, they create change in a different type of way, and it's it's more indirect, and it's sort of harder to um, measure because they're um, creating change again by uh, you know galvanizing public opinion and, and changing the, the terms of political debate, right? So instead of 
necessarily having a very specific demand that they're trying to advance. They might have demands, but um, but you know the the sort of broader um, you know rallying of, of public outrage of of you know sort of moral um, force can be a very important thing. And so because of this, and the other thing that happens is a lot of times the impact of a mass movement comes later on, right? It comes after the mass protests have already sort of died off and then these have written, been written off as sort of failures and they haven't accomplished anything. So this like cr creates a, a challenge with how do we look at and, and measure these. Um, but, uh, and so, so certainly we saw this with uh, the global justice movement. You know, people come back and they say, well, what did Seattle accomplish, you know? And it feeds into the, the default answer in our society is nothing. They didn't do anything. Yeah, you know, and, and it's very, that position is very easy. And you don't have to know anything to say they didn't accomplish anything, right? You say, <laughs> oh, yeah, they didn't accomplish anything. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, right? Well, with the, in the Seattle case, actually, this is like the, probably the most amazing counterexample, right, where these uh, protests, in fact, accomplish a lot of things. Not, of course, just one protest, but the series of globalization protests. First of all, the WTO is derailed. You know, those uh, conference talks fell apart, and the whole World Trade Organization spent 10 years trying to get back to where they were in Seattle. And they didn't, and arguably, they never got back to that point. Um, the free trade area of the Americas, which was protested in Quebec City, in Miami, in Argentina. This was to create a NAFTA from the northern tip of Canada down to the southern tip of Argentina. It doesn't exist, right? This thing fell apart, right? It, it was, it was um, totally displaced. The whole development debate changed where these sort of neoliberals who had this tremendous ascendancy in the 90s all of a sudden were on the defensive all of a sudden they have to say we too care about poverty you had defections from within their ranks people like Joseph Stiglitz and Jeffrey Sachs all of a sudden now become um, right well Krugman too ultimately yes and um, and that change that has policy implications it changed it changes policy around capital controls and whether countries are able to control the flow of hot money in and out of their countries it changes policy around debt relief, where in 2005 there becomes a major debt cancellation agreement that, that we're talking billions of dollars in, in resources that countries in the global south are not um, paying back to, to their lenders in the north. So there's all sorts of impacts of, these, of, of this social um, movement. But, you know, it takes some work to track those things down, right? It, it, you have to sort of pay attention. You have to pay attention over a number of years. You have to look at sort of the state of the debate. And the movement's always one part of this. In this case, I'd say it's a very important part, but there's all sorts of other political dynamics in play, right? And so um, we can do the same thing with Occupy, right? People say Occupy fell apart. It didn't accomplish anything. But we can go through a list, even apart from the you know, prefigurative creation of community or the importance of that alternative space, which is where a lot of people go. I'm talking instrumental stuff. There were millionaires' taxes passed in New York and in California that were considered debt. Like, people in politics said you could not pass these things. They passed after Occupy. In Ohio, they tried to do the same thing that they did in Wisconsin, right? This time through a public referendum. And that campaign, uh, the tide of that campaign is totally changed. There, uh, you know, great reporting from Andy Kroll there. Um, and Mary, Mary Kay Henry was there. And she says, uh, president of SEIU, she says, I went out on the doors. Every conversation I had at the doors in Ohio 
was in the context of the 99% versus the 1%, this conversation that Occupy Wall Street started. And that effort in Ohio fails um, in, in, in a way that it, it, it succeeded in Wisconsin. Um, you know, and, and the, the list goes on, right? I mean, there's, there's uh, all sorts of things that we can point to. Now, this is not to say that the global justice movement or Occupy is the revolution, right? Or that it accomplished everything that people wanted or it couldn't have been more effective, right? But it is to say that if we're talking about measuring impact, we have to sort of do this hard-headed um, assessment of, of saying, well, what did it accomplish, right? Yeah. And, um, and weighing that then against was it worth it. And this is where you get back, actually. You loop back to the structure-based organizing. And that's the same question. Was it worth it, right? Because, you know, yeah, you can say we won our 75-cent race, right? You have that easy answer right. for your victory. But who cares, right? I mean, is that like we fight for, you fought for two years, you spent $4 million in organizing resources to get a 75-cent raise, right? And that's, sure, that's important in people's lives. But you have that same discussion that you have to have in mass movements. What did we win? Was it worth it? What did it take? You know, Occupy was not a movement that was, you know, was, you know, had a ton of resources coming into it, you know, from the unions or anything like that, right? It was something without a paid staff, without a, you know, office building, without any of the things that in conventional organizing are sort of the keys to creating change. And yet it does something that the AFL-CIO tried to do, right? It tried to do it a year before with the One Nation Coming Together march in Washington, D.C., and, and it couldn't do it. And this was exact. they did everything right, you know, uh, Van Jones and, and um, you know, Rebuild the Dream. Do, they do everything right from this perspective of structure-based organizing. They get a million coalition partners signed up, right? They've got organizing staff. They've got resources committed. And yet, you know, and, and they had 175,000 people show up in Washington the year before, Right. And it doesn't change the conversation. The, the conversation still becomes one dominated by the Tea Party, dominated by the debt ceiling and austerity, right? That, that, that these, these groups using all of those tools uh, of structure-based organizing are trying to do this and, and fail to do it. And it takes a different type of organizing, a different type of resistance, doing the stuff that's more disruptive, that's a different type of protest, that's not the showing up in Washington on a weekend when everyone expects it and marching with our signs in the way that everyone expects us to, right? And, and uh, it was Occupy was a totally different type of mobilization and had a different effect. So I'm going to ask this one que- one last question, and then we're going to open it up to audience questions. I mean, we could probably keep talking to Mark all night, but so you guys want to be thinking about your questions over the next few minutes, we'll give you a chance to ask some of them. Um, and Natasha will have a microphone for that. So, But before we go there, um, because we're talking about victories and resources committed and people we hate, um, you write in the book very eloquently at the end about the way protest movements are erased from history and the way, quote, opportunists wind up getting credit for movement successes. And of course, everybody in here knows that I'm thinking of our friend Andrew Cuomo, who is going on a little victory tour about raising the wage to $15 an hour right now and bringing Hillary Clinton along with him because, yes, that's we know that's how this change got made, right? So can you talk about the fight for 15 through the lens of the work you did in this book? Right, right. So, I mean, there, there's and why the we ge- hate Andrew Cuomo. Yes. So, there's the general point that, um, you know, I would talk about this point as the left is very bad at claiming its victories. The left has a huge problem with being able to claim its victories, and one of the reasons why it's hard 
is because when we do secure victories, you have the Cuomos of the world come in and, and, and pretend it's their victory and that they were champions of this all along when, in fact, you know, they had to be drugged, kicking and screaming to, to do this. And Hillary Clinton didn't even support $15 minimum wage. Right? Still doesn't. She's still doesn't. Yeah. And, and, and she's up there on stage. And this is, um, you know, this is something that uh, is, is a pretty common, um, again, it's a pretty common pattern, right? You can tell the history of the civil rights movement, and a lot of people do, just as the history of uh, Lyndon Johnson's brilliant arm twisting, right? Like you I can heard read, that was a problem mm-hmm. with that movie, right? Yeah. Right. I mean, it's you, you can read volumes and volumes on this, right? And how that's, um, how the, the politicians sort of haggling over the end game of, of reform get, get credit for all this. And that makes it, you know, activists have a really hard time. A, because the opportunists are up there doing it. B, because we are, we are very well aware of what it took to get that, of the work that remains to be done. I mean, usually we're not getting everything that we want. It's very rare. So we got 15 in New York City, right? In, right? But, and but Westchester 12. County eventually. Yeah, and so, so and, sort of, and yeah, and and, yeah. and then the left sort of sees, you know, is like, well, you know, and then they sort of fixate on those type of things, and and you know, and and that's partly because they're the ones who are going to continue on this work to to get it passed in other states and to get it to apply to other places. So there's a there's a reason for that, but at the same time, it's really demoralizing, right? It's, it's you can live in this left where we never win anything, you know, when <laughs> when in fact the fight for fifteen is this amazing transformation. You know, a friend was saying. Um, that it was maybe less than 10 years ago where our slogan was in, in New York was 515 is not enough. Anyone remember that? You know, <laughs> Like what sort of a crazy world do we live in? We can't that, survive that, on 725. Yeah, yeah. That, right, We just need to keep on finding things that rhyme, essentially. That's right. That's right. That's right. That $15 an hour. And then, you know, um, even where we didn't win $15 an hour in Kansas City, you know, we win $12 or $13 or whatever. Well, th- yeah. that is like so far beyond yeah. <laughs> what we ever thought possible. And, and you know, Wait, so one, you're saying activists sell themselves short too that, much? That is true, right. Okay. So there's, there's a claiming victory problem. You know, an, so another thing going on here is this relates to this idea of the insider game versus the outside game. You know, we talk in the book about you know, demands and campaigns have instrumental qualities and have symbolic um, uh, qualities. And, you know, the structure-based organizing tradition, you know, tends to focus on the sort of instrumental details of this. You know, if it's a campaign for card check neutrality, right? Well, that's a pretty technical type of thing. And it might resonate or, you know, even around a scheduling change, right? Well, for that, for a group of workers in a shop, that scheduling issue might be the very most important thing to organize around. It might be a very important thing to organize around, and it affects people's life in that shop. But if you're trying to do broader-based mass uh, mobilization, that's capturing the public you know, spotlight, that's changing the political weather, the instrumental properties of the demand you know, are sometimes less important than the symbolic properties of, of the demand. Um, and, and I would say that Fight for 15 actually is a good example of you know, $15 functioned not just on the, you know, it is a concrete demand. We want $15. It's understandable. But it's, it's functioning on a symbolic level, right? It, it's, so it doesn't really matter that we only win 13, right? I mean, we have this proposal here that's a proposal to more than double the federal minimum wage. I mean, it's, it breaks out of that, um, you know, the, the instrumental 
mindset, the inside game mindset is, well, no, we have to fight for a schedule that goes from 925 to 965 to 1015 over a five-year period. And, and, you know, and, and then people sort of fixate on that. And then by the rules of that type of organizing, a call for a $15 minimum wage is just doing everything wrong. Like, you know, how, how can you possibly call for that? You know, you're never going to get it and, you know, whatever. Um, but, you know, that... Um, if we understand that it takes a different type of organizing, there's some different skills, there's some different ideas to, to capture um, the public imagination, to move public opinion around these things. You know, we approach these things of how we create our demands and frame campaigns in a different way than we would otherwise, right? So something like Black Lives Matter, the, you know, again, a constant refrain was you didn't have specific enough policy demands, right? That, that Black Lives Matter didn't, wasn't advocating for, you know, whatever they didn't, what, what are you for and why don't you have a policy platform? And, and it, you know... It, it, How many it, times do we hear that with Occupy? Like, yeah, but what are right, your demands? Right, right. What demands? Yeah, and well, it, and at least with Occupy, there was at least a platform of not having demands. Black Lives Matter was just stupid. Yeah, right. Right, right. And, you know, the, that's a whole other discussion, but yes. Um, but, you know... The, the fact of the matter is that they win on demands, right? Like Black Lives Matter with a call for stop killing us. They win body cameras, right? So this idea that they would have been more effective if only they were a movement for body cameras. Well, it's ridiculous, right? Because that's not what captures the imagination. That's not what motivated people to go out and block traffic and to do all these amazing disruptive actions. What motivated people to do that, what, what, what you know, uh, shifted this idea from being that this is something that is a problem that doesn't exist that we can ignore was this demand of, of uh, stop killing us and these amazing disruptive actions. But then you have the, the policy demands existed, right? The ACLU every year would put out their 10-point platform for things ne that needed to be d done to end discriminatory, discriminatory policing in neighborhoods to stop the militarization of local police forces. And what happened to those reports, you know? Politicians threw them away, you know? They went into the circular bin or they collected dusk on some, someone's desk. And what happens is you have these movements break out, politicians scramble to respond to the, re the realignment, to, to create a, a political response, and all of a sudden, body cameras is the easy thing to do, right? That's sort of the low-hanging fruit. So, so that's the first thing they grab onto, but that's not the only thing. There's prosecutions, right? So, well, we have to have special prosecutors in, in these cases because you can't have the same prosecutor who, you know, whose career depends on having a chummy relationship with the police also be in charge of prosecuting the police. There's a contract. Well, you can't have a movement around we need special prosecutors because they, ha they have too tight of a... I mean, it's not... Special prosecutors matter. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> special prosecutors matter. You know, but they win on those, those type of things. And that's the same thing we saw you know, in all these movements, in the global justice movement, you know, debt relief becomes the easy thing to, to grab onto. And there's all sorts of crazy technocratic details that have to get worked out before that final debt relief agreement um, is, is formed. But those are irrelevant to, to, the, to the mass movement. You know, that's sort of the haggling that happens at the end game of, of social change. So you know, I think a key lesson here is not confusing policy and, and power, right? If the problem is power, you know, it's not a policy problem. It's not a problem with our policy demands, right? It's the problem is we don't have the power to, to force action on those. I would definitely not exempt the role of the media in this as well in okay, terms yeah. of how things are framed and just in terms of that dialectic that you're talking about between, like, you know, the wonky stuff and, and the more sort of sweeping demands. It's really all about, like, how you control the narrative around your own movement and how you think about it. So, yeah. 
Speaking so, I think we have questions. Um, so I guess, yeah, raise your hands and Natasha will come stick a microphone in your face. And maybe we can take like three and then toss it back to Mark. Cool. How do you determine that your disruption is adequately disruptive enough to make a difference? Because there's so many protests people do that aren't disruptive enough, so they're really masturbatory. <laughs> Ten points for the use right. of the word masturbatory. Making a difference versus just being a pain in the ass. Um, great. So I'm basically convinced. Um, I'm very worried about climate change and eco-apartheid. So my question is about scope and speed. And it's, you know, give the ecosystem of the American left is huge. How much of the union movement, community organization, landscape, et cetera, do you think is up for taking up this new organizing model? And how quickly do you think realistically that this can spread around the country? Is this a five-year project, a 20-year project, a 50-year project? What's the sense of where you see this going in a kind of great case scenario? I have a Mr. Raincloud question. <laughs> so it, it, it sounds like there's an argument within the book, right, that there is a, a relationship between the structural pragmatic uh, organizations and the uh, mass mobilizations and the, and the uprising, and that um, uh, the, the pragmatic liberals uh, should be a little more respectful of the activists leading the uprisings because they actually get the goods in a way that isn't always appreciated. So that could be something like, sorry, uh, <laughs> organizer calling me right now. Um, that could be something like uh, $15 an hour. That could be something like the fall of Mubarak in Egypt. But in each of those, and so I, I think that there's, there's something to be said to that, right? Because uh, Fight for 15 was funded by SEIU, right? SDS received a check for $10,000 from the auto workers, right? When, that, when they engage in that relationship and they invest in that relationship, it pays off. But the flip side of that is, is in every example that you've listed, there's the example of we had the revolution and then we had the counter-revolution. So we can say that the WTO got derailed, but between the 2008 financial crisis, income inequality today, and the Panama Papers, it's clear that the other side ultimately won, right? Mubarak may have been dropped from power, but the other side eventually won. Uh, and in, even fight for 15, right? They got $15 an hour from Andrew Cuomo in 2020, but the original demand from SEIU was fight for 15 and a union. And so I guess my question is, uh, it seems like some of the argument of the book is geared for sort of the structural pragmatists on why they should be more willing to work with the uprisers. But for the uprisers who have, you said, you know, this is not the revolution, but for those people who have those hopes for that uh, uh, greater change. What is the lessons that you're learning from sort of the strategies of nonviolent uprisings and resistance that they can take and bring into their movements so that they can make greater change? Right, right. So, I mean, I think that there's actually a bunch of questions loaded into to, to what you said, and, and some of it re relates back to what Daniel was saying, too. So our second question that we got. Um, I mean, first of all, when you're saying there's a relationship between the structure groups and momentum-driven organizations. Actually, most of the time we're arguing that there's a rupture, that there's actually not the relationship that we would, we would like to see. So you're right that we'd like to see more of the type of stuff that you're, um, that you're talking about, where maybe you know, structured organizations are going to fund you know, uprising, up, uprising stuff or, or, or what have you. you know, I don't, um, 
you know, ultimately we talk about this sort of toward the end of the book as as a, an ecology of change or social movement ecosystem, which is a you know a, a language that other people use too. That we need to you know you need to have different roles in movements, and movements have different stages. I mean, eventually you do need a good lawyer, right, to haggle out the final version of whatever legislation is going to go through or, or whatever else. I mean, there's a role for political insiders. But, you know, at the same time, there's a, so much disproportionate emphasis on the importance and value of those type of, of, of people that we don't need to talk about that, right? Our entire political discourse is is, um, is trained on the importance and, and efficacy of, of those type of people. So part of this is shining a light on the parts of the social movement ecosystem that are too often ignored. And we would like to see a, a, a greater... Um, you know, collaboration. This goes back to the second question: How you know quickly is everyone going to adopt this stuff? Right. Well, I mean, you know, there's there's a few different ways to look at this. Once we've, you know, identified these organizing traditions and emphasized the importance of the, of them, and and talked about how we can do um, mass mobilization more effectively. Um, you know, we would like to see more people doing that. But you know, obviously, not every organization is going to totally change its organizing model to undertake this stuff, nor should they necessarily. Um, but um, you know, the um, you know having a, a, a having that dialogue, having a greater openness instead of being dismissive, can make a, a, a you know a big difference, right? Where we can. Um, you know, have some of those opportunities for for funding or or, um, or whatever else come up. Um, the um, you know the other answer to your question is there are people who are you know another thing that my my brother is involved in is these trainings called the momentum trainings that are really talking about how to do mass protest in a way that's more sustainable, that, that is um, more attentive to the need to absorb the energy of a, of a movement and to institutionalize. Um, and so there are some groups that are really trying to take this model in a very direct way and apply it. So those are groups like Kasecha in the immigrant rights movement, like If Not Now, um, you know, a, a variety of these other um, groups that are, um, you know, like 99 Rise, which is um, one of the movers behind Democracy Spring, which is happening um, this, this coming week. So there are people who are um, really trying to do stuff in this model, you know. Um, and, then, and then there's sort of more of that level of dialogue and, and openness. You know, unions are, um, you know, are pretty hesitant to get involved in this stuff. And there's a reason for that. You know, Stephen Lerner writes about this stuff, who did Justice for Janitors, right? And, and he says, well, you know, um, there's a reason why unions are, are, you know, hesitant to get involved in this stuff. You know, they have assets that can be seized. You know, they have leaders, uh, who, formal leaders who can be sued and imprisoned. They have contractual obligations to their members worth, you know, millions of dollars, right? We have a legal structure around this, this stuff uh, in the United States that makes some of this, um, you know, uh, difficult. Um, and yet, that can't be the end of the story, right? Strikes now are at near an all-time low, and this is the this is the labor movement's most, you know, uh, visible and public moment where they're doing disruptive action, and not just doing, you know, disruptive action, say in a in a, sh a work, uh, uh, you know, delegation to the boss, but doing something that's appealing to the public and really functioning on this broader level. You know, strikes now. Um, certainly, if we talk about something like the Chicago teacher strikes. And these strikes are won and lost on the level of public opinion, right? It's not just withholding your labor in a shop. And so to that extent, they're much closer to this, 
model and this way of thinking about momentum-driven mass mobilization. And that's the Chicago's teacher strike is a very, very interesting example of this, right? It's something where they are defying the law, arguably. They have a legal argument, but like they're willing to defy the law. They're willing to try to uh, have you know, they have their little technocratic argument because they have to, you know, whatever it is, lanes and valleys, or you guys maybe know this, right? They have the reason why under the contract they can strike, yeah. but they're pretty open. The real purpose of this is, is, is a political purpose. It's to rally the public around fair funding for our schools, and that means taxing the rich. Those are not things that you can legally do with a strike. Well, they can legally strike over wages and benefits, and that's exactly. it because yes. of that law that was passed in 2011, which are... Long-time Belabored listeners know all about this. But, yeah, I was actually going to ask about this and glad you went there because I think that this is really important because this past Friday, their action did involve a bunch of other groups, groups that came out of Black Lives Matter, groups that came out of Occupy, who all came together and did a big day of action in Chicago, which right. seems to fit into your model pretty well. Yeah, actually, and framed their demands as this broader political type of demand that, you know, that has, you know, a, 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 you know, a wider symbolic resonance, right, that, that draws people in. And these type of strikes, you know, this is a type of labor activism that we're, we're used to seeing in France, you know, we're used to seeing in some other countries, but that is, you know, very rare for legal reasons, but also for ideological reasons, right? You have the legacy of George Meany claiming that he, he, he won't be caught dead out on a picket line, right? I mean, there was a you know, there is a there is a political history to this um, within um, the the labor movement. Um, but like I say, I do I, I see some hope here. I, I do think that there is um, a real openness about that this stuff that I have not that I didn't see you know 15 years ago. I mean, I think people are interested in this in a, in a new way. I think the fight for 15 is, is evidence of that, which also um, involves strikes, but in a different context. Yeah. in the sense. Right. Well, the, the right. CTU strike we were just talking about is also a one day strike. Right. So. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, and then there's the other uh, sort of the counter-revolution argument that he was making, you know, and this gets back to the ecology of change. And mass mobilizations can often ac accomplish some really remarkable um, things, but it's not the end of the story, right? So Egypt is, is an example we use tw toward the end of the book of where, you know, the, the framing question that we use there is why wasn't it the Muslim Brotherhood that led the revolution, Right. And again, by all the rules of structure-based organizing, they're the group. You know, they have the, the they have this amazing membership network, this amazing you know um, network of committees and leaders and local you know neighborhood captains. They have this whole social service infrastructure that's been created through years of being underground. They have, by the rules of traditional organizing, they are the group that's supposed to lead the revolution, and yet they don't do it. You know, and this is a very common thing. They have to sort of be prodded into it by these, you know, by these sort of younger groups, these scrappy upstarts who are not appealing to parochial interests, who are making a broad-based unifying uh, appeal and, uh, and being a really critical catalyst for the revolution, which then the Muslim Brotherhood, once it's underway, then comes and joins and supports and, and is an important and co -ops um, and part of it. And then that's the after story, right? And then this accomplishes a revolution that no one, you know, no one, there was no one who was saying Mubarak is vulnerable, he's on the edge of falling. You know, people said this guy's going to stay forever. And yet this, you know, model of uprising is able to overthrow him. Now, that's not the end of the story, right? After any victory, is you know, there's this huge ongoing process of 
um, defending your, your gains and consolidating your, your, your gains and everything else. And, and we saw very clearly in Egypt the skills that, that, that um, work to the advantage of these young, scrappy upstart groups sort of work to their disadvantage once you had newly formed and some old political parties haggling over the spoils of, of what's going to come next after the regime. Then all of a sudden, the structures of the Muslim Brotherhood again become very, very important, right? They're ready to be a political party. They're ready to make parochial demands within the confines of the political system. They're ready to sort of box out and, and, and um, you know, secure their power. And so you could say they, yeah, I mean, they sort of co-opted it, right? They become, they fracture the coalition um, and, and, um, and then, you know, that's a long story from there and to the point where today we have another military government um, in power in, in Egypt. You know, I, I think that we should look at that situation as, you know, what lessons can we draw from this? And, and you know, I, I think I sort of chafe at the most cynical interpretation of this, which is that, well, we would have been better off without a revolution, right? People never should have spoken up, right? And you do get a little bit of, of, of that, you know, but I think it is a perfect lesson and it is a cautionary lesson about what mass mobilization can accomplish and, and what its limitations are, you know, and what, at what point you need these other modes of organizing to, to be working. So that, that also, um, goes to the question of how quickly can this stuff be adopted? You know, I, I do think it needs to be Adopt it needs to affect our thinking about how to do campaigns. Um, but you know, a part of that is also creating that healthy ecosystem where um, groups are working together. Um, and there's also sort of interesting intergenerational tensions that go on within those movements. And it was often framed in the Egyptian context as sort of a generational divide, and how they one of the main reasons they couldn't get their shit together because youth were isolating themselves, and you know, these creaky old structures were not changing fast enough. And there's also, you know, I mean, in terms of secular activism, there's a trade union movement in the backdrop as well that was never able to really galvanize them in those gains. So, I mean, um, yeah, I don't, uh, do we have other questions that we should? I think we have other questions. Yeah. Um, so I just finished your book a couple days ago, and um, one of the kind of key absences that I noticed was any kind of, like, serious discussion of um, political economy. So it seems like, your like kind of, your discussion of strategic nonviolence is primarily like these movements are you, you say they succeed or fail based on kind of how well they sort of galvanize public opinion how well they kind of um, win the moral high ground right but I'm wondering if you kind of look historically at the cases where nonviolence has succeeded it's always been because they kind of incorporate the industrial working class and have been able to kind of like really put the the gears on these mechanisms of production right. Um, and so I guess that, that brings me to like this other question, which is, um, you know, if you look at kind of these spontaneous uprisings of the late um, of, of like our of, of our time, right? They um, one of the things I, I think you you could launch a critique of is that you know there really isn't in under like the conditions of late capitalism an ability to place like material pressure on the working class. Um, so I'm, I'm guessing how would you kind of respond to that? So. It seems to me that often the people who participate in quasi-spontaneous uprisings, and I'm thinking particularly of Occupy, are drawn into that movement without a lot of experience, and that's actually one of the things that benefits the movement um, and also makes the movement valuable in that it draws in new people. But often those people want to go beyond that moment and start expanding the work, 
And by and large, they don't have the tools to do that. And so you're talking about very rich genealogies of organizing and theories that have been really thought through and tested over time. Um, and these are usually not well known to people who notice that Occupy is happening and drop in and set up a tent and are like, this is awesome. Um, and so I'm wondering about how we sort of make those connections and how to think about how the more institutional knowledge comes to find the people in the tents. Um, and, you know, it seemed to me that uh, things like Occupy caught a lot of people who very naturally would not have had any experience. So people who came out of college, um, most people my age have not been in a union and will never be in a union because union density in America is 11%. So where do you get trained? Like, where do you learn to participate in organizing work or even to be organized? Um, so I'm wondering where those things sort of cross over um, and how people who engage in spontaneous movements become more sophisticated. So this is actually sort of like Sarah's question about transmission of knowledge, but it's going in a completely different direction. So this is sort of interesting. So, Mark, one of the things I like the most about the framework you're using is the, the emphasis on the historical and institutional context of the way that organizing practices are developed and transmitted and reproduced, rather than seeing them as things that just spontaneously arise from nowhere or that are just sort of an unquestionable common sense. But I sort of wonder how the, what you're calling an organizing tradition I think is a really good concept and how it would relate to sort of what I think of as an ideological tradition. And my background context for this is that my political background, and to some degree I know yours as well, is in the socialist movement, which is, I would say, at its best, an organizing tradition. It's about practices of mobilizing people, how to make demands, how to win victories. But it's also about identifying what are the key aspects that make our society so fucked up and bullshit that we're going to call capitalism or patriarchy and capitalism and imperialism or whatever particular analytical framework you're going to use, and what are the things that need to happen to move it towards something that we're going to call socialism that would be better. And of course, that's not the only kind of ideological level analysis you can have. It's just the one I happen to have. But I'm just wondering if that level, because that's another thing that has to be produced and transmitted and reproduced institutionally and, you know, in in the background I come from, that's linked ideally to organizing practices, and I just wonder if that how that fits in because it seems like that's sort of left out of a lot of you're sort of sort of taking for granted that we sort of that big picture stuff we can just sort of assume, and that we can just talk at the level of organizing. So I'm just sort of wondering how you would put those things together. Right. I feel like all those questions so, fit together pretty sort well. Of, yeah, right. You guys right. plan that. And I also you? want to go back to Alon's question about the how disruptive is disruptive and what to do. So there's a lot of stuff to handle, but um, so. You know, I think, Peter, your question relates to this question about political economy. So the first thing to say is, like, look, you know, you're right. This book doesn't do everything. You know, you have to make a choice about what your intervention is and, uh, you know, at what level you want to talk about. And, and really the, what we're talking about is, uh, is at the level of organizing traditions and movement strategy. And we do that for a specific reason because we think that strategy has been neglected, you know, and that there are not – uh, good, good conversations about this. And, and, you know, what you're saying, Peter, that socialism as an organizing tradition, actually, I think that there's a huge gap there. It's not, it's not an organizing tradition. We don't talk, we talk about it as political economy, right? We talk about it as, uh, you know, generally academic, uh, you know, analytical discussion and not about strategy or how to organize or, or any of those things, you know? And, and the, what's 
you know, what's left in socialism as an organizing tradition are these old, old debates, right? Leninism and, and party politics. You know, we are she, not talking about right? the Russian Revolution. Yeah, exactly. Like, you get sucked into that. And why is that? You know, why is it that we get sucked in, if, if we're talking about socialist organizing, that we get sucked into a debate that's, you know, 80 years irrelevant, right? You know, why, aren't, why don't we have a more sophisticated vocabulary to, to talk about these things? So, look, we're trying to engage on the level of, of strategy. And going back to the political economy question, look, there's no doubt that there are socioeconomic conditions that are, that are going to determine and arguably predetermine the success of, of, or failure of a movement at, at a given time. And again, if you read Piven, she and Piven and Cloward are very explicit about this, right? That, that like, you know, you have political economic questions that, a lot, that are going to have a big impact on whether or not your movement succeeds or, or fails. But what do you do with that, right? I mean, it's not a question that's useful for organizers because you have to deal with the situation that you have, right? And, and historians can always go back later and say, um, you know, this movement succeeded because of this factor and this movement failed be because of, of this factor. And, and they make some valid arguments. You know, there are historical, uh, political and economic trends that are, that are very much affecting um, the outcomes of, of movements. But, but um, what do you do with that? And so the tradition of civil resistance recognizes skills and conditions, right? There's, there are conditions that are going to affect your movement and you can do your best strategic analysis of what those conditions are and whether or not they're favorable to a particular tactic or strategy. But there's also skills, and that's what you do have control over, right? Um, and this is where you can have a movement that's more or less savvy at exploiting the type of conditions that, um, that you do face. And a lot of times you have, um, you know, people activists, organizers working in situations where people say, this is not possible. They are going to fail. This is not going to work. Um, you know, when, you know, the fall of Eastern Europe, you can get all sorts of foreign policy papers saying that, you know, there's no prospect of major change in the next 10 years. And then a month later, you know, you have a, a massive revolution. So now in retrospect, you can again go back and do a, a political economic analysis of you know, geopolitics or class consciousness or whatever you want to do, it, was that that useful for the organizers at the at the time? You know, sure. I mean, I think that there is an element of them having to evaluate the the conditions, but um, but you know, what we're trying to emphasize is there are a huge set of skills, there are a huge set of um, you know strategies that can be employed and that can actually transform conditions that uh, that your best historians, analysts are calling, you know, adverse and, and unwinnable. Um, so, yeah, that's a, and that's, a, that's a choice that we made in this book to, um, to focus on that. Then there's another question related to that, which is the role of ideology. You know, to, again, functioning at the level of organizing traditions, it is interesting, this book, um, you know, is, is sort of non-ideological in a certain way. You know, if you write about guerrilla warfare, right? How does guerrilla warfare work? What are the strategies of guerrilla warfare? Well, there's right-wing groups that use guerrilla warfare. There's left-wing groups that use guerrilla warfare. We may agree with them. We may disagree with them. But you can still sort of examine the models of how you do that. And we would say you could do the same thing with unarmed uprising and mass movements, right? You can do um, an analysis. And these can be used by different people of different ideological orientations, right? Operation Rescue is a direct action movement, a disruptive direct action movement, right? And, and you can probably draw some, um, some lessons from, from how they succeed or, or fail. And so you have certain situations with civil resistance in the international context where um, 
you know, the right-wing student movement in Venezuela gets interested in this stuff, you know. And so some people on the far left sort of start saying, oh, civil resistance is just a conspiracy theory and Gene Sharp is just a CIA front and, you know, um, that's, you know, we shouldn't pay any attention to this at all. And, um, and, and, and then Hugo Chavez himself takes up this line that was Ahmadinejad's line, that Sharp and Soros are just sent by the CIA to infiltrate our con- countries, etc., and, um, you know, and what Sharp writes back about that, he says, no, you know, at where there is ideology in this is that this theory at its core is democratic. It's based on the idea that you need majority popular support for a movement to, to win. And so he says, you know, hey, Hugo Chavez, I wrote a book called The Anti-Coup. You know, you can use civil resistance to defend a popular government against, um, you know, against a, a coup attempt by a, a group that does not have the majority of the population, right? So you can use civil resistance on either side, and the side that's going to win is ultimately the one that's able to, to rally um, popular support. So I think that that's sort of an embedded piece of ideology. But you're right, there is a whole other ideological discussion that's a little bit missing from, from, from this framework, right, where we're just not engaging on that. Um, Sarah's question new people come in to, to these movements and, um, and they maybe don't have a lot of experience. So this is something where we're talking about, um, you know, movements have a DNA that gets replicated, right? And, and, and oftentimes this gets set at the, sort of at the outset, right? So, um, you know, the uh, General Assembly becomes the, the decision-making body and that's replicated everywhere. And that might very quickly outlive its organizational usefulness, right? Not that but we have any opinions about that. Right. But, it's, <laughs> but it sort of becomes embedded in, in, the, in the DNA of the movement, and so it sort of gets um, reproduced again and uh, again. And, again. And, and, you know, that stuff comes out of this lineage that I'm talking about, this Quaker tradition and the nuclear power protests. You know, and, and interestingly, one element of the DNA that was very important in the global justice movement was affinity groups that doesn't really make it into the Occupy thing and, and affects uh, a little bit, but but um, you know, but affects like the general general assembly in Occupy was sort of a public free for all. While in other contexts, it's actually an assembly of representatives from affinity groups, right? Well, that's a pretty different t- type of thing. But but the point being is that all of these things, whether it's decision making process, process stuff, or whether it's tactics, right? So in Occupy, the the idea of Occupy, right? The occupation of space becomes this tactical idea that gets, you know, sort of uh, reified and deified in the movement, right? That this becomes the most important thing, and people sort of fixate on that, not as like a strategy or a means to an end, but this becomes the, the, what the movement is, is, is occupying space and the, the, the countercultural space, prefigurative space that we create in the, in, the, um, in the occupations. And so then when those are evicted, for some people, that's sort of the end of the movement. That's this devastating blow in the movement. And that's something that was sort of, um, you know, there was a lot of advantages to the idea of an occupation being the guiding tactic of, of the movement. It could be replicated. People could take it. We had 1,500 occupations. That was awesome, right? And yet we're also wedded to that in this very fixed way. In the global justice movement, right, Seattle is this incredibly successful disruption of a summit, of a trade summit. And then we have to disrupt every single other trade summit and political convention that comes along with yeah. the exact same organizing methodology of trying to surround right. it with protesters. And you know what? It's not 
that big of a surprise after the second or third time. And the, that's yeah. how they only yeah. meet in Qatar yeah. now. The, the yeah. police sort of figure <laughs> out how too. to um, do this stuff. So that's where awareness of this stuff, um, you know, can be important. And, and then when we talk about these you know, momentum trainings, they have a very specific way to approach this, where, which is called front-loading, that, that we have a much more uh, thoughtful, premeditated process of what values we're going to front-load into um, the, the movement. And that actually allows for a lot more um, sort of decentralized, organized, right? Like if you sort of implicitly set the ground rules, I mean, this is the other thing people think that decentralized organizing means anything goes. There doesn't have to be any structure. But there's actually a ton of implicit structure that's necessary to to be able to do effective decentralized stuff, right? To be able to send groups off on their own under the same umbrella as this movement and not do things that are going to detract from it, but but that's going to contribute in a constructive way. And a lot of those things in Occupy's case were just sort of transmitted implicitly. So part of the idea of of being more thoughtful, reflective about these models is, is sort of going into movements or intervening very early on to have a discussion about what are the um, types of values, what is the tactical repertoire, what is the strategy, what is the theory of change that we want to um, to guide our movement. Um, but you're right; these things attract a lot of new people. You know, you can do this from through mass trainings, also, right? The civil rights movement. How does the civil rights movement handle this? You know, well, they have like six-hour meetings every night in the church, right? And, and that creates, you know, and then it's the freedom songs and everything else. It creates a community. It, sen- it creates a sense of cohesion. But it also, you know, creates a very clear sense of like this is our vision. This is our tactical, um, you know, range of, uh, you know, r- range of actions that we're doing. This is what you can do by yourself. This is what we do as a group, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so different movements you know, can be more thoughtful or deliberate about how they do mass training as a way of incorporating and, um, and um, you know, uh, uh, absorbing the energy of people who just come in from, from out of nowhere. And I want to address one more thing, which is how disruptive, the question we had earlier is how disruptive enough is to make a difference, right? You know, this is, to me, the, you know, you can sort of make the argument the more disruptive the better, right? I mean, the more disruptive it is, the more it's going to attract attention and the more likely it is not to be ignored. The problem is that disruptive stuff, again, we talked about it earlier, people don't like it, right? It's very polarizing. Um, and so, you know, you're, you're um, and, and so, you know, actually an ideal case scenario um, or, or a very common scenario is that you have these disruptive actions and, um, and the outcome of this, which it was in the civil rights movement, is I don't like your tactics, I don't like the way you're going about this, but I agree with you on the issue. You know, it moves people, even if they don't like the, the actions, it will, it will pol- polarize in a positive way people around the issue. In, in the book, we talk about this a lot with ACT UP. You know, ACT UP was incredibly unpopular. People hate ACT UP, and yet they're very effective at polarizing people around the issue of AIDS and saying this needs to come out into public debate. This needs to be treated as a public health emergency. This is something that we need to um, address. And yet there's points at which, you know, ACT UP does disruptive stuff that that, that maybe turns the public against them, right? They disrupt mass at St. Patrick's, and this becomes a, a super controversial action. Did it go, was it effective? Did it go too far? And, you know, it's a strategic judgment that you have to, to have. So, I mean, I think that the question is um, not exactly how much disruption is enough, but sort of like how much can you get away with, right? How much can you get away with and still 
polarize people to where you, you want them um, to, to be polarized, right? And this is where other things like nonviolent sacrifice become very important, right? Like people who are doing hugely disruptive stuff but, but show that they're putting their bodies on the line, that they're morally serious ab about this, that they're willing to risk their jobs, you know, in the case of a strike or, or their physical well-being or whatever, that taking those sacrifices is a very uh, affecting thing, right? It, it, people sympathize with it. It creates a situation where you say, even if I don't like that tactic, you know, I want to sympathize with those with the students who are doing a sit-in at the lunch counter, and not with the mob that's dumping milkshakes over their heads and putting out cigarettes on their backs. You know, um, and so um, that's that's sort of the discussion. You know, the, how these factors build up. You know, how sacrifice can um, actually allow you to get away with much more disruptive um, stuff, and the interplay of those factors. So we've been talking for a while, and we have a cake, but does anybody else have a burning, burning question that you absolutely have to have answered? Um, also, we're going to hang out and eat cake, so um, we can ask Mark for more ask strategic cake. questions over cake. Anybody? Anybody? Let's eat cake. <laughs> You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored. <laughs>